Well, hey, good evening, Fathom Academy. Uh, once again, Pastor Chris here. Good to be with you guys again uh, for week three of our Fathom Academy Christian Theology course uh, taught by uh, my friend Ryan Tafalowski. Just thankful for him. Uh, so, so this is week three. Uh, we have covered the doctrine of God, really the kind of the doctrine of the Father, uh, talking about uh, the triune nature of God and uh, then moving into the attributes of God. And now in week three, we move to uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, uh, Jesus Christ. And this will be a couple of weeks uh, covering uh, really Christology. That's the theological term that we use for the study of the Son of God. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to spending this time together. Remember, the chat is available for you uh, if you're watching this with us as we're airing it. Uh, love to answer questions, uh, be in dialogue. And if you have questions, uh, Ryan and I are going to be doing uh, a video uh, really shortly here to kind of address those questions together and dialogue a little bit more about this. So uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get uh, to it this evening. Lord, we're grateful for uh, once again, a chance to gather, a chance to learn, a chance to go deeper with you through uh, th through learning, through growing, through challenging our minds. Uh, and Lord, tonight, as we look at Jesus, as, as we look at the Son of God, uh, Lord, we, we want to behold him as uh, the, uh, the, the apostle John writes. We want to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for Jesus. Enrich our minds tonight and, and deepen our hearts for you. Uh, Lord, we pray this in, in your son's name and by the power of the spirit. Amen. Well, hey again, everyone. Great to be back with you here in week three. Thanks again, Chris, for the introduction and for your prayer. And I do pray that uh, we would just be illuminated by God's spirit as we look at the second person of the Trinity. So as Chris mentioned, we've already done some work around the triune nature of God. We've looked at some theology proper by looking at the attributes of God. And now um, we are looking uh, to Christology, which is the technical theological term for the study of Jesus Christ. Uh, obviously, Jesus Christ is a pretty big deal in Christianity. And so uh, we're going to spend a lot of time here. So we're going to be talking about Jesus not only this week, but we're going to be looking at Christology next week too. So uh, we're going to do some preliminary work now about uh, trying to discover who Jesus is, particularly as he is represented in the witness of the New Testament, those who knew him and journeyed with him. Uh, and this is important for us um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Let's see, how can I put this delicately? Uh, I am uh, virtually, yeah, absolutely certain that uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, when God finally reveals whatever it is he has in store for his future and for the future of creation, I'm going to be astonished and embarrassed and mortified about how many things I was wrong about theologically. And the truth is there's lots of doctrines in the Christian faith where uh, reasonable Christians can disagree and have different positions. Uh, there's lots of leeway and latitude. When it comes to Christology, though, there are certain things that we just simply must have right about Jesus Christ, because we can be wrong about a lot of things, but we can't be wrong about Jesus. And that's the challenge for us, because we live in a culture where everybody knows the name Jesus Christ. Everybody knows a little bit about him, no matter how distorted or partial. Uh, and everyone has really strong opinions about Jesus and we may find that we've got lots of, uh, of unbelieving friends and neighbors and coworkers who really don't know who Jesus is. And uh, if we're not clear about who Jesus is, as he's revealed himself to be in our scriptures, uh, then our culture won't be. And so to drive home the point, if you were to go out and ask people on, a, say, a college campus, who was the Buddha, you might get a lot of different answers, and some of them might make no sense at all. But I very much doubt that you would get the same kind of anger. I don't think you would get, well, the Buddha is not my spiritual teacher, or I don't even think the Buddha ever existed. Why is it that people respond this way to Jesus? And the answer, uh, I think, as we're going to unpack in our time together, as we look at the, the way the New Testament writes about Jesus, is that Jesus makes a claim on us. He confronts us in a way. Uh, he puts us in a position where we have to make a decision about him, about uh, what it is that he represents to us. So that's what we're going to do. Um, in this first talk, this first part of Christology, we're going to talk about Christology, as I mentioned, in two parts. In this first part, what I want to do is talk a little bit about how the New Testament presents Jesus. 
not only in the gospels, but also in the letters and uh, all of the information uh, that we get about Jesus in the gospels, how are we supposed to make sense of it? Jesus is a very mysterious figure in the gospels in some ways. And it's interesting. He's very divisive now, as we just saw in that video, but he was very divisive in his own day too. People didn't know what to do with Jesus, didn't have a category for what he is or what he was doing. Uh, And if you read particularly in the gospel of Mark, if you read the gospel of Mark straight through, one thing you'll notice over and over again is people saying, who is this? What is happening here? And so to orient us to our study this evening, I want to talk a little bit about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's a name some of you may know, 20th century Lutheran theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the who question. And what he means is this. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago that one of the things that makes Jesus Christ so unsettling is that he confronts us, right? He confronts us with himself and we have to give an answer. And uh, we see the who question at work in Matthew chapter 16, right? This is where the disciples are sitting around and Jesus turns to him and says, hey, who do people say that I am out there? And they say, oh, you know, there's lots of opinions circulating about who you are. You know, there's some people who think you're Elijah. Some think you're a prophet. Some think you're John the Baptist. And Jesus goes, okay, interesting. But then what's, what I want you to notice is he turns to them and he says, but you, who do you say that I am? I want to hear what you think about who I am. And this who question is a very haunting question. Bonhoeffer puts it like this. This is from an essay uh, called Who Was and Who Is Jesus Christ that Bonhoeffer wrote in the 30s. And he says this, the question is not, how are you possible? So when we come to Jesus, the question is not, how are you possible? It's not a how question. He says that is the godless question. That's the serpent's question. Of course, referring to the garden uh, narrative of the fall. So the question is not, how are you possible? But who are you? Okay. I want us to keep this in mind because as we uh, explore the doctrine of Christology, we're going to be tempted to ask a lot of how questions. How is Jesus possible? How is it possible for someone to be fully God and fully human? How does that work? We don't have a category for that. But Bonhoeffer would say, it's the wrong question. The right question is, who is it that is confronting us in Jesus of Nazareth? And as the New Testament wrestles with that question, the answer they give, and they they would say the only possible answer they can supply is that this is the God of Israel in this person. The who question. So with that in mind, let's dive into some New Testament teachings about Jesus. Who is Jesus of Nazareth according to the New Testament? Uh, To start, our explanation, I want to introduce a very sort of um, poignant quote from the theologian Rowan Williams. We've already met him in this course, and I think it's likely you'll meet him again. I like him a lot. Um, I'm thinking about having asking him to adopt me as his grandson. Uh, I'm obsessed with him because he writes things like this. This is from his book, Being Human. And he's talking here, just to give you a sense of the context of the quote, about the fact that all throughout the New Testament, nobody knows what to do with Jesus. In the Gospels, people are confused by him. They're divided over him. Some people think he's a lunatic. Other people think he's the son of God. Most everybody agrees that he's some sort of strange prophet. But the New Testament and the Gospels are trying to tell us that he's those things, but he is much more. He is God in human form. So that's the context for the quote. Listen to what William says. Jesus is supreme eloquent silence before his judges is in a sense, the moment of supreme revelation in the gospels. It is where he becomes visibly the mysterious reality that nobody knows how to talk about. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Asks the high priest. And Jesus says, "Eh, if you want, are you the king of the Jews? Asks Pilate. And Jesus says, as you say, and, uh, and this terrible refusal to answer the questions Tells, uh, tells both Caiaphas and Pilate that what is happening in Jesus is something immeasurably out of the ordinary categories and habits by which people organize the world. In that moment, and here's the key point, nobody knew what to call him because there were no words for God made human. 
This is a point that I want to keep uh, in mind. The Gospels know that it is strange to talk about God as a human being, but they simply don't know any other way to describe what is happening in Jesus of Nazareth. As William says, the work of Christian theology had to invent language for talking about Jesus because we simply did not have any categories. Jesus exploded our categories and he demands that our categories come to accommodate him, not the other way around. And so that's some of the work we're going to do today. And we're going to finish it next week when we look at the doctrine of Christology as it unfolds in the history of Christian theology. So Williams's point, uh, no one quite knows what to call Jesus because we have a very hard time imagining uh, someone being fully human and fully divine. But that, of course, is precisely what the New Testament challenges us to believe about Jesus. And so I want to make two points here. The New Testament is asking us to hold two theses together, which are very, very hard for us to reconcile with our uh, usual categories of organizing the world, as Williams would put it. And thesis one is this. Orthodox Christian teaching holds that Jesus Christ was genuinely human in every dimension, physical and psychological. Okay? So, Jesus Christ is a complete human being in every possible sense of that word. So, number one, let's talk a little bit about his bodily biological dimensions of humanity. So, number one, uh, Jesus Christ was born of a human mother. Uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three so-called synoptic gospels, all drive home the point that Jesus was born just like every other human being was born. He was delivered by a human mother. Now, of course, the circumstances of his conception are different altogether, but all of the gospels and uh, yeah, emphasize that Jesus was born of a human mother. It says that Jesus grew and he developed and he learned, as Luke tells us in chapter two. Now that tells us, that we can't simply think of baby Jesus as somehow being able to articulate and express all the knowledge in the world about everything. And here again, we struggle to understand what the gospel is telling us that somehow God made flesh also had to grow and develop um, in a biological sense, right? Uh, Jesus has a childhood, just like you and I had childhoods. He experienced the limitations and constraints of finitude. So we did some work last week about the attributes of God. And we said that he is infinite, uh, which is another way of saying that he does not have any constraints. He's not subject to the same limitations and weaknesses that human beings are. But what's astonishing is that in the incarnation, God voluntarily knows what it's like to inhabit our finitude. Uh, Augustine, again, in On the Trinity, says that even though God has the whole expanse of the heavens at his disposal, he still chose to know what it's like to live inside the four walls of a human life. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The four walls of a human life, which means that Jesus was subject to finitude. He was hungry, as Matthew 4 tells us. He's being tempted in the wilderness. And one of the temptations is our, one of our most prime biological urges, which is to eat. Right? So just because Jesus was God incarnate doesn't mean that he didn't need to eat. Uh, we have Jesus as hungry, uh, not only in Matthew 4, but in other places. We have Jesus thirsting. Uh, obviously, this is not the point of the story in John 4, but it's worth mentioning that Jesus is tired from a long journey. He sits down and he needs a drink. Right? He's fully inhabiting the human experience. Uh, Jesus grows weary. He experiences weakness and fatigue. This is all over the place. I've given you just the two temptation narratives, but after Jesus is tempted by Satan, it says that he essentially collapses. He's so tired. And we're told in other places too that he, uh, yeah, he grows weary. He has to withdraw from people. That makes me feel better about being an introvert. Um, my wife is a very uh, outgoing extrovert. She draws her energy from people. Uh, and she could hang out all the time, uh, all day, every day, where that really tires me out. And I always feel bad. And now I'm just going to say, well, you know, Jesus appears to have been an introvert. When he was around crowds for too long, he had to withdraw. He got tired, not just physically, but actually mentally, intellectually tired. Uh, and of course, 
if you're familiar with a little thing that happens at the end of the gospels called the crucifixion, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus suffered and died a mortal human death. Okay, this becomes very important because as we're going to discover next week, there were certain Christological heresies that were teaching that Jesus didn't really die. Uh, that is that he, oh, um, one popular view is called swoon theory where he, oh, just, you know, uh, got really, really beaten up and was in rough shape, but he recovered. No, the gospels are very, very clear and graphic even about the death of Jesus. So there is a sense in which God in Christ knows what it is like to die a human death, which is a very difficult thought for us to get our heads around, I think. So number one, thesis number one, Jesus inhabited a fully human life, physically and psychologically. We've talked about the physical dimensions. Let's talk a little bit about the psychological or emotional uh, dimension. It's interesting for us to think, and I think that even when we think about the incarnation quite explicitly, we don't often grasp that Jesus experienced and inhabited a fully human psychology. This is important too, because we're going to meet another heresy next week that taught that Jesus had a physical body, but his mind had been replaced by the divine rationality, the logos, the word. So the divine mind was in fact, just sort of dwelling in a human suit. But the New Testament also affirms that Jesus had a fully human psychology. He experienced the full range of human emotions. We could put it that way. A good example is love, right? We've already talked about uh, God being love. It's the only attribute of God, which is directly predicated to God. God is love. But I mean that Jesus experienced love in a sort of a a very human way. Uh, Not just this sort of supernatural love that comes from God, but think about it in John 13, right? Jesus is uh, feasting uh, at the last supper, right? The Passover meal with his disciples. And there's a very, very tender moment, uh, where it says that he looked around at his friends and it says that Jesus loved his friends and he loved them to the uttermost. It's a very tender moment, right? It shows Jesus entering into the love of friendship, the kind of intense love that we have for one another as human beings. Jesus knows what it is like to love and be loved like that. We're also told that Jesus expresses anger. Now, the difference here, of course, uh, is that Jesus' anger is always righteous. It is always pure. When we get angry, we do destructive things or we do inappropriate things or we overreact and we get angry in ways that are disproportionate to uh, what provoked us. But for Jesus, uh, he shows us that there is nothing inherently sinful about exhibiting anger. And there's a a very famous example in John 2, but also in the other gospels of the cleansing of the temple, right? Jesus is filled with zeal uh, because he sees that his father's house, the temple being desecrated and uh, demeaned by the practices of the leadership of the temple. And so Jesus filled with anger goes and drives everybody else. So, you know, I've got a one-year-old daughter, as I mentioned, we're reading a lot of children's Bibles these days. Uh, and man, Jesus is always kind of wimpy in these Bibles, right? He's sort of uh, always hanging out with kids, uh, being really gentle. And of course he was. There's an incredible tenderness about Jesus. But I've noticed I have yet to find a children's Bible that has a depiction of the cleansing of the temple. Uh, maybe I need to write one where Jesus gets really mad and starts whipping people because that's what John says that he does. Uh, Mar- uh, Jesus is capable of indignation which is a little bit different uh, than sort of anger. It's sort of, uh, there are times when Jesus is indignant in a state of uh, just sort of anger and frustration over the unbelief of Israel in particular, but also in other contexts. Um, And you have to imagine that Jesus could be provoked to frustration uh, hanging around with those bunch of knuckleheads, the disciples. They're always doing ridiculous stuff, sometimes stupid stuff. And sometimes Jesus is indignant. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember a children's program called Awana, but it was the rage in churches about 30 years ago. And it's still practiced in a fair amount of churches. And it's like a little kids program. It's like kids, boy scouts, church, sorry, church, boy scouts, Christian boy scouts, where you go and you get 
rewards. And I remember going to Awana maybe when I was young and uh, the leader of my little pack group said, I will give a candy bar to anyone who can memorize a Bible verse by the end of the next half hour. And see, I was a clever kid. I thought, well, I'll just work smarter, not harder. And I turned to John 11, where you will find actually the shortest verse in the Bible. Probably some of you know it. It is two words. Actually, it's one word in Greek. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. That's all it says. Uh, And I got myself a candy bar. Uh, I didn't know it then, but this is actually a really insightful little verse. Jesus wept. And to set the scene for you, the context is the death of his friend, Lazarus. Uh, Jesus has been teaching in another village some miles away, and he gets word that his friend Lazarus, uh, says whom he loves, is very, very sick, and he's about to die. And so by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already died. He's standing at Lazarus's graveside, and it says Jesus wept. Think about that. Now, Jesus, if you know the rest of the story, is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But even though he knows that he has power over life and death, you get this sense that Jesus, for that moment, feels what it is like. The sort of, if you've ever had a loved one die, or you've been surrounded by death, the sort of frustration and just the feeling of utter powerlessness before the face of death, where all you can do is sort of weep, right? We're no match for this. This thing is too big for us. Jesus feels that moment of grief, not only in John 11, but another example I'll give you of grief is in Matthew 23. Uh, There's grief when we lose a loved one, like grief, like mourning. But I also think there's another definition of grief that you parents out there will know. I think we might define grief like uh, as wounded love, right? When we grieve over our children, for instance, when they make decisions that hurt us, it is coming from a place of wounded love. And you can see this kind of grief in Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. Uh, He knows that he's about to go up and to be crucified uh, and be handed over to the, the hands of sinful men, as the text says. And he stops for a minute and he's looking over Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does but you wouldn't do it, right? Grief, wounded love, distress. Uh, You see Jesus distressed in the gospels, uh, particularly at the garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion. He knows the ordeal that he's about to undergo and he's in this uh, garden and he's praying. He's desperate for God to find another way to win the the redemption of the human race, but he knows that there's no way out. And it says that he is so distressed that he is sweating uh, drops of blood and he can't even rely on his friends because they've fallen asleep. So Jesus feels this sense of abandonment, right? Of isolation, of total alienation. And he's by himself and he is distressed. Now uh, there are readings of the garden of Gethsemane that suggest that Jesus isn't really in distress because God, you know, how could God be in distress, right? He's divine. He knows that he's going to rise from the dead. That's a bad way to read that passage because what's going on here is Jesus is showing us that he knows and feels the weight of the human predicament. Actually, he's the only one who knows the full weight of it. Man, okay. My favorite thing about Jesus uh, in terms of his uh, emotional expressions in the gospels comes from Matthew chapter nine. It's a passage some of you may know. Jesus is teaching in the hillside and he gets, he catches a glimpse of the crowds and he's tired in this passage. That's worth keeping in mind. He does not feel like going to work. He's not ready for a big sermon on the Mount. He's tired, but it says he looks on the crowds and what does it say? It says he looked at them and he had compassion on them. That's the way that our English Bibles translate this Greek word as have compassion, but it's not the most literal translation. Uh, The word in Greek is splagizomai, splagizomai, which is a very fun word to say, splagizomai. And what it means is literally, it means to turn your stomach, to feel it in your guts. And it says that Jesus came down on the mountainside and he saw the crowds and he splagizomai. He felt it in his guts because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's as if he says he sees the plight of his people and he is so moved by it that it's turning his stomach. 
man, how's that for compassion? He feels it in his guts. So part of thesis number one, Jesus is fully human. We mean that on two levels, biologically, and we mean it uh, psychologically, emotionally. Jesus experienced a genuinely full humanity. Okay. This is something that John in the first letter of John expresses this way. Uh, Captured here in this very famous painting by a guy named Caravaggio. Some of you might know this painting. Uh, by a sort of Baroque Renaissance painter, Caravaggio. It's Thomas, of course, placing his hand into the side of Jesus. And John puts it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, handled, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. What I want you to notice in this passage is how carnal, tangible all the language is. John is saying, no, uh, Jesus Christ was a body that we could see and we could hear and we could handle. We could touch it. And that's what's being captured here in the painting. Notice how just what a visceral physical image it is. And uh, the incarnation, it's, uh, it's shocking in the, in the sense that God takes on a human body that we can touch and handle. And there's something sort of intentionally shocking about this. The New Testament scholar, Jerry Stackhouse, uh, sorry, uh, John Stackhouse. Jerry Stackhouse was a very famous NBA player in the 90s who I loved. So Freudian slip there. John Stackhouse uh, is a theologian, New Testament scholar. He taught at Vancouver, uh, Regent College in Vancouver, Canada for a long time. He says, if we're going to understand the word incarnation, literally, it means God became meat, meat, carne, right? Carne asada, right? Meat. There's something intentionally shocking about this, that God takes on a fully human life that we can touch and feel. So the New Testament is absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is a a true and full human being. Why did it have to be this way? Why is it that Jesus has to inhabit a fully human life? Why is it that he can't just sort of forgive sins from on heaven, from on high in heaven, from by fiat, just sort of wave a wand and say, everything's fine. The whole fall, the whole mess humanity's made of the world, it's fine. Why did he have to come into it? I want to show you a passage from Gregory Nazianzus. We've already met him, I think, in week one. We talked about Gregory. Listen to what he says. That which he, meaning God, Christ, has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves must be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only with the bones and nerves in the mere portraiture of humanity. What Gregory is saying is this, when humanity fell, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell, we fell as whole creatures, body and spirit and mind. And we are corrupt in each of those dimensions of our being. So it's not just our bodies that fell. It's not just our minds. Lord knows it's not just our minds. We all have broken psychologies, even those of us who are well-adjusted and normally functioning people still have uh, badly dysfunctional thought patterns. Our emotional life is a mess. Our physical life is a mess. We are a mess. This is what Gregory is saying. And Gregory makes the point that for God to save us, he has got to inhabit every single dimension of our being. He says, he makes the point, it's not like we only fell halfway. It's not just like our bodies fell. Everything fell. And so for Jesus to restore us, he's got to come in and he's got to reclaim the entire human person. So Jesus needs a full psychology to take up and to heal our broken psychologies. And he needs to take up a human body to take up and heal our broken human bodies. That which he does not assume, he does not, he does not heal, Gregory says. So for uh, us to be fully saved as full persons, that's why we need the incarnation. 
Jesus as a fully human person. So thesis number one is that Jesus is fully human. The New Testament is clear on that. But here's the second point. As the gospels unfold, it becomes clearer and clearer that there is no way to talk about Jesus Christ without also talking about God. Because this figure, Jesus of Nazareth, he keeps doing the sorts of things that only God can do. And so before long, the gospel writers just come to the conclusion that, listen, I don't have a category for a God man, but here he is, Jesus of Nazareth. He's fully human in every way. We've walked with him. We've touched him. We've seen him. We've seen his body. We've seen him eat. We've seen him get tired. And we've seen him in distress. And we've seen him weep. And we've seen him rejoice. And we've seen him angry. Those are all human things. And yet at the same time, he is doing things that only the God of Israel can do. It's almost as if they're saying, I don't know what to make of it, but here it is, right? So here's thesis number two. Jesus Christ is fully divine, sharing in the same divine essence as the Father and the Spirit. So when we talk about Jesus of Nazareth, we are talking about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Well, where do we see this in the New Testament? Well, uh... Jesus's own self-understanding seems to give us a clue into this, particularly in John's gospel, but also in the other gospels too. Jesus seems to be showing this kind of awareness that he has a unique relationship to the father, a unique sort of intimate relationship to the father that stretches from before creation, as he says in John's gospel. And also that in some unique sense, Jesus understands himself to be God because he starts doing the only sorts of things that only God can do. We're going to unpack that in a little bit uh, in greater detail here in a moment. So Jesus's self-understanding seems to suggest that Jesus believes that he is divine. Another very, very, very important piece of this equation in the New Testament and in the years immediately after the New Testament was written is the fact that from right away, Christians start worshiping Jesus. Okay, now that's very, very important because the earliest Christians were all Jews, right? And what is the most foundational confession for a Jew? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Think about the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. So monotheism is drilled into their their consciousness since the time that they're small boys. And yet they grow up and they realize this Jesus of Nazareth is worthy of worship. I want you to think of how hard that would have been for a first century Jew to do. And yet we have evidence from very early on that Jesus is being worshiped as divine, but not instead of the God of Israel, but as the God of Israel. Really remarkable. Another uh, element that testifies to the divine nature of Christ in the, in the gospels is that he makes a claim to divine prerogatives. What I mean is Jesus claims authority over things in institutions that are instituted by God, which of course would have been scandalous and even blasphemous. This is why the high priests want him killed. Number one, he claims the authority to forgive sins. I've given you just one example from Mark 2, but it's all over the Gospels. Jesus forgives sins. And again and again and again, you see the religious elites and the authorities of Jesus' day saying, what are you doing? Only God can forgive sins. And it's as if Jesus is saying, yeah, exactly, right? He gives himself the authority, claims for himself the authority to judge the peoples of the earth. This is Matthew 25. The great final judgment, the sheep and the goats, has God on the throne separating the nations uh, in judgment. And who is it that's on the throne? Jesus says, well, it's me. I'm the one who judges the nations. Uh, he, um, he, he, he counts himself worthy to accept devotion and worship, right? A couple of examples here, John 20, uh, Matthew 16, where Peter, for instance, recognizes Jesus as the son of God. And instead of saying, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. I'm just a regular person who happens to be inspired by God. Jesus accepts Peter's worship 
and devotion. So Jesus also claims lordship over nature and the created order. Now, this is really interesting. I've given you a passage here in Matthew chapter 8. This is a story probably you'll know. It's in lots of children's Bibles. This is Jesus calming the storm. The disciples and Jesus are out on the lake and the weather starts getting kind of nasty and there's big waves and they're afraid that they're going to be sunk. Jesus is asleep in the hole of the ship and he comes up and he speaks and silences the waves. So he brings these chaotic waters to a place of peace and stillness. Now, for us, that seems like a really cool Jesus trick. Like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And the disciples say, well, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? Now, there's more to it here because in the Hebrew mind, to read this story, you would have thought almost immediately of the creation accounts where you've got the waters which are frothing and churning. In the Hebrew mind, waters uh, represented chaos, fear, destruction, uh, nothingness. And uh, just like the creator God spoke over the waters and brought them to order, calmed the chaos, you've got Jesus speaking a word and bringing the created order to peace and harmony. Uh, it is a way of expressing God's uh, lordship over creation that Jesus is claiming for himself. I'm the one who made this stuff and I can call it to attention. So he expresses lordship over nature and creation. And again, he ex uh, expresses mastery over, the, over death and he exercises the power to raise life up from death. Uh, we've already talked about Jesus weeping at the graveside of Lazarus, but in the very next breath, he turns around and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he says of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Obviously not a claim that a human being can make about themselves. And he demonstrates it by reversing the power of death and raising Lazarus up and, and essentially saying to his disciples, I am going to do this for all of creation. I'm going to raise it up from death. So Jesus lays claim to divine prerogatives. He does and says the sorts of things that only the God of Israel does and says. Briefly here, I want to reinforce the point by recognizing that Jesus claims authority even over institutions that were instituted by God and were thought to already have divine sanction. I'll give you just two very brief examples. Uh, Jesus claims in Mark 2 to be Lord over the Sabbath. That's a really controversial thing for a Jew to say. And we know this because some of the religious leaders wanted to stone Jesus for saying it. But because of the, they say quite rightly, well, God gave us the Sabbath. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, yes, I am Lord even over this, which dovetails nicely with our second point here that Jesus claims to be the Lord over the law. This is in Matthew 5, where he claims that he is the fulfillment of the law, he says. Uh, the law that was given to Israel by God through Moses, which is good and holy and just, Jesus says, I am superior even to this. And he even goes on to say, and then Paul will say later, that everything the law was pointing toward was reaching its culmination in, in Jesus. Jesus very much understands himself to be the climax of Israel's history, the point to which everything has been building, right? And really an, an extraordinary claim to make. The kicker, though, and what got Jesus really into trouble in the Gospels is that he claimed to have an identical relationship to the Father. And what I mean by this is Jesus was claiming not only to have some sort of unique relationship to God, not that he was uniquely inspired by the Spirit of God, but in one sense, he is God and he exists in identical relationship to the Father. This is ultimately what gets Jesus killed. It's this uh, claim to share in the divine life uh, that really gets him into trouble with the religious authorities. So uh, I'll give you just a few examples, all from the gospel of John, because this is where that theme is most fully developed. So in John chapter 10, Jesus says quite unequivocally, I and the father are one. And he expands on that in chapter 14. He says, whoever's seen me has seen the father. He's talking to his disciples here and he says, you know, you've been with me all this time. How can you keep asking me to show you the father? Haven't I shown you already? If you've seen me, you've seen the father because I am in the father and the father is in me. In John 17, he prays to his father and he says to his father, hey, glorify me with your presence, just like you did with the glory that you and I shared 
before the world even existed. So he's claiming to be eternal like God, to have been uh, in the divine life before the world was created. These are shocking things for a human being to say. But the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, right? There's a scene in John 8 where all of the religious authorities immediately pick up rocks and they try to stone Jesus. And why is it? What did he say? It's this one little phrase, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. I am. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's the name of God. That's the name that he gives. Yahweh in Exodus chapter 3. I am. And in Greek, it's ego I me. Now, why that is significant is because during Jesus's day, most folks read the Old Testament, not in the original Hebrew, but in a Greek translation called the Septuagint which was the product of a collection of scholars who had taken the Hebrew Bible and they had translated it into Greek and it circulated very widely in the Mediterranean world. So for instance, when Paul quotes from the Old Testament, more often than not, almost always, he's quoting from the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew original. Uh, now that's highly significant because all these people would have known the Septuagint. And Exodus 3, when God says, I am who I am, the Septuagint translates it as ego I me. I am. So Jesus is not just saying, hey, look, before Abraham was around, I was around. He is identifying himself with the name of God. He is claiming more or less to be Yahweh. A shocking, shocking claim. So what are we supposed to do with all of this, right? With our last few minutes together, I want to flesh out just a couple of the ways that the New Testament writers begin to talk about Jesus as they try to make sense of this phenomenon that they don't have categories for. Remember, nobody knew uh, what to call Jesus. He was fully human, fully divine. And uh, the New Testament writers come to say that, yes, Jesus is a human, but it's obvious that he's more than that. And they find universally that they cannot speak about Jesus without also speaking about the God of Israel. And I want to just give you a few examples of what that looked like. I'm going to look, give you one image from John, one from Paul, and one from the uh, author to the Hebrews. This is in John 1, the prologue of John, one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament. You'll surely recognize some of this language. Let me read it, and we'll do a little bit of unpacking here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Greek here is proston theon. It means face-to-face, right? The Son and the Father were face-to-face from the very beginning, and the Word was God, meaning that this, this son who was face to face with God is also God. And he was in the beginning with God, skipping down to verse 14. He became flesh. This word's important. The word translated flesh here is the Greek word sarks. And what it means is just our sheer physicality. It means our human bodies, uh, our kind of weak, limited, frail human bodies. Uh, and John is saying, Jesus, uh, in the person of Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took up residence inside of a human body, fully inhabited a physical human experience. And it says, and dwelt among us. Now that word dwell is actually the word tabernacle uh, in the original language. Uh, It says that he tabernacled among us or he pitched his tent. And this is a very clear reference to the tabernacle of the books of Moses. This is the sort of traveling tent that the Israelites have in the wilderness where God dwells, they, they settle for the night, they set up camp and they set up the tabernacle. And that's the place where God comes in his glory and his presence to dwell with his people before they can build a permanent temple. And John is saying, just like God's glory came and dwelt in that tabernacle, that's what's happening in the person of Jesus. He set up his tent among us. And what does he say? And from there, we have seen his glory. It's very clearly an Old Testament image where the glory of God shines forth from the tabernacle. And John is saying, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the tabernacle. He is the place where God's presence is. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And finally, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. Remember, we talked about this way back in week one. No one has ever seen God. He's veiled in a kind of mystery that human reason cannot penetrate. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Uh, 
the Greek word here for make him known is exegetomai, exegetomai, which uh, is where we get the English word exegesis. Now that you as a church at Fathom are in a unique position to know that word. You're an Acts 29 church. You've got a really good sort of reformed pastor who is schooled in biblical scholarship. So you've probably heard the word exegesis. When we talk about exegesis, what we're talking about is digging into a text and drawing out its meaning, right? trying to figure out what a text is trying to communicate, what it's like, what's in there. Exegesis, exegeting, exegeting a text. And John is using that same verb to refer to how Jesus uncovers God. And he's saying, listen, uh, all I can tell you about Jesus is that he exegetes the Father. He exegetes the Father. He uncovers the Father. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Really a striking thing to say. Paul, too, is another one of the New Testament writers who is really trying to wrestle and articulate who it is that we're actually seeing when we see Jesus of Nazareth. Who is this? He's asking the who question. And I want you to see how he answers. This is from Colossians 1. He is the image. The Greek word here is icon. That's where we get the English word icon, right? An icon means a physical representation of something, but it doesn't just mean a picture. It means a representation that manifests and takes a share of what it represents. So it's not as if he's saying, when you look at Jesus, you're seeing a picture of God. You are seeing a manifestation of God. Do you see the distinction there? So he says, he's the image of the invisible God. <coughs> Excuse me. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things together. Do you realize the kind of astonishing claims that he's making about Jesus of Nazareth? That he is at the center of all reality? That's what Paul is saying here. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God, the word here is pleroma. It means the content that makes a thing what it is. The fullness, the content. In him, all the godness of God, we might say, was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, play Roma, which makes the incarnation incredible to think about. Because listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. What is happening in the person of Jesus Christ? God himself, the one who exhibits all those attributes, those magnificent, almighty attributes that we talked about last week. He is laying those aside to, to inhabit a human life. Right? Uh, as Augustine says in On the Trinity, that even though Jesus, that God has the whole expanse of heaven as his, he would rather know the four walls of a human life, right? He takes on a human existence from the inside. Uh, and this is the way that Paul describes it in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So though he was in the form of God, though he was the exact representation, the shape of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, ekinosane, uh, where we get the, the word kenosis, means emptying, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying, what's happening in Jesus of Nazareth is that the fullness of God is humbling himself to enter into a human body and a human experience. And if we think about it, what it is must be like to be God, how humiliating it must be to share in a human life. And yet God in Christ was not ashamed to become one of us. It's really magnificent. I'll close here with this passage from Hebrews, which sums up a lot of the themes we've been talking about. How, how are we supposed to talk about Jesus of Nazareth? How does the New Testament talk about him? What kind of claims are made about him? Well, listen to what the author says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So a couple of points here. Uh, the author of Hebrews sees, sees Jesus as the fullest revelation of God. So if we want to know what God is like, 
Uh, we can consult the prophets and we consult the scriptures, but really God has shown us in the person of Jesus Christ. So if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus Christ. And again, you see this very, very high Christology already early in the New Testament period where the authors are claiming that Jesus is the one through whom all things exist and in whom all things hold together, which is interesting. It suggests that if Jesus stops doing his job for even one second, all of reality kind of falls apart. And listen to what he says. He is the radiance, the apogasma. It's a word that means sort of exuberant, overflowing, shining forth. Jesus Christ is the shining forth of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint. This is the Greek word character. It's where we get our English word character. And what it means is uh, an imprint that would go like on a coin or like if you emboss a piece of letter, leather, it's an exact printing, an exact representation. So he is the exact imprint of the divine nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. So the New Testament from front to back is trying to drive home that in Jesus of Nazareth, we are not encountering any ordinary man. He is fully man, fully human, as we've talked about physically and biologically and psychologically, but he is also the fullness of the divine splendor, the pleroma, the exact imprint of the divine essence. So if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Now, this didn't solve the problem. And as we're going to see, it took the church about 300 years to come to an authoritative statement of who Jesus Christ is in the form of a doctrine. And so we're going to next week, as we come together, we're going to tell that story too, of how theologians working after the New Testament really worked to create a language by which we can speak coherently about Jesus to express that he is fully human and fully divine in a way that at least kind of holds together. Because again, to the point that Rowan Williams made earlier in our talk, there's not really categories for Jesus Christ. He explodes all of our categories and redefines uh, what is possible. And so that's the story we'll tell next week. Uh, thanks for sticking with me. I'm grateful for your time. And I'll look forward to seeing you out there in Fathom Academy in week four.